Good morning. As we look into the word of the Lord that endures forever today in our study of the book of Isaiah, we come to Isaiah chapter 40, which is a little intimidating for me, honestly, not just because it's long, but because it's one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture, period, which kind of brings a bunch of pressure. You know, it's sort of like, man, God, please help me to do justice to this because I promise you, uh, my flesh and I am like the grass. I can't do it. And so I've been asking the Lord all week that he would. You know, I love this passage of Scripture, and I love it so much that I almost have grown self-conscious about it. You know, one of the things that Beth and I do fairly regularly as we go to a little prayer meeting, uh, maybe 10 or 20 people, a bunch of different churches, and it's one of these deals where, like, it starts at 6.30 and then it ends whenever, and that's usually, like, 9.30, honestly. It's led by a worship leader who just kind of leads us, and we sing and we pray, and it's sort of like if the Spirit of the Lord is saying something to you, then you get up and you say, well, here's what I think God is saying right now. I think he's saying this to me, and, and I felt like I was supposed to share this with you. And a lot of times, I'm sitting there praying, and I'm thinking, you know, Lord, I mean, is there something you want to share? He's like, yeah, Isaiah 40. I'm like, look, I've done that three times. You know, can, <laughs> These people are going to think this is the only place I ever go. He's like, Tom, is it about you or is it about me? Just go there. It's like, I love this. And I want you to love it. I want it to minister to you because it's been just so helpful to me. I go again and again and again and again and again and again and a lot of late. And the reason that I go there is because Isaiah 40 comes to me and it comes to you if you're a believer in Jesus and it tells you who your God is and then it tells you what your God is like relative to all the problems in your life and all the problems in this world. And he is infinitely greater He is infinitely up there, and all the stuff that troubles us, all the stuff that overwhelms us, all the stuff that we are powerless against is infinitely down there. He's coming to me, and he's coming to you, and he's going, hey, let me just tell you. So here's who I am. Here's what I'm like relative to all that stuff that consumes you, that overwhelms you, that is wrecking you right now. And by the way, because of who I am and what I'm like, a day of deliverance is coming, and it's coming because I've promised that it would come. Think about this with me for a minute. Jesus Christ was promised by the prophets, like Isaiah, long before he ever came into the world, that he was going to come into the world. And he came into the world. And he himself has promised that he'll come back. So he'll come back. And when he does, what has he promised to do? He said, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to set all things right. All of the injustices that have plagued you, I'm going to take care of that. And it is going to be satisfying. It's going to be a day of judgment. It's going to be a day of freedom. It's going to be a day of deliverance for God's people. And because of who he is and because of what he's done, it's it's going to happen. But then here's how Isaiah 40 ends, and it's awesome. He comes to us and says, look, in between this day and that day, man, you're going to feel overwhelmed. Oh, man, you're going to feel like you've been run over by a bus. You might actually get run over by a bus. Like, you are going to be tired. You're going to be spent. You don't have enough for this. So turn in your worn-out strength and receive from me the strength of the Lord. I will strengthen, like I have excess power, it's infinite, and I have enough for you. So Isaiah 40, if you're not familiar with it, is written by the Isaiah the prophet, okay, and he's writing really to a generation of people who aren't going to be born for another four or five generations. 
In other words, by the power of God, he looks forward in time. He sees that 150 years after he writes this, there is going to be a people in the city of Jerusalem, in the nation of Judah, who are going to watch their country be completely overrun, not by the Assyrians this time, but by the Babylonians, who by this point in time in history had overtaken finally their inveterate enemy, who was the Assyrians, and with the Assyrians, everything the Assyrians had. And like the Assyrians who we saw last week, the Babylonians are going to march on the city of Jerusalem. And they're going to walk up to the walls and go, okay, so here are your options. Surrender or we're going to completely destroy you. Last week, the Assyrians said that. And God himself went before his people and fought for them and saved them, rescued the city. Today, God's not going to do that. He looks at his people and says, you know what? I have sent you prophet after prophet. I've given you opportunity after opportunity. Let me tell you the condition of your heart. You are prideful and you are faithless. And so for your spiritual good, because I love you, you will now be overrun. These people don't just witness. They personally experience Babylon come in, take the whole of their land, destroy the capital city, including the temple of God, but not before the Babylonians marched into the most holy places of the temple of the Lord. Think about the message this sent to his people and then marched out with all of the treasures and all the implements of worship, the cups of gold and the plates and saucers and this and that. All of it gone, and they put it on a big cart, and then they took it all to the city of Babylon, and then they put it into the temple of their God. What did that look like if you were one of these people who witnessed that? God has suffered an apparent defeat, hasn't he? You're thinking, oh, man, this is crazy because, you know, I mean, just rewind the clock 150 years. Like the last time this happened, it was the Assyrians. God went out and he fought against the Assyrians. He conquered the Assyrians. Like they took almost the whole of this part of the world and there was this little hole in it called Judah and Jerusalem because God defended them. But wait, now the Babylonians have defeated the Assyrians and the Assyrians have now defeated us. Has God been defeated? It's disheartening. And as if that's not enough, the Babylonians then herded up a bunch of the people from Judah, including most of the nobility, and literally drove them like cattle. I'm not kidding. 900 miles to their city of Babylon. Young and old, sick and healthy, firm and infirm. Hey, you know what? Grandpa's having a hard time walking. Can you carry Grandpa? I can carry him about 900 yards. But 900 miles? It's going to be a team effort. Those who made it, once arrived, (laughs) then had to rebuild their lives from nothing. A foreign land with a foreign tongue with zero resources. Listen, we've had a rough 18 months. I think we can all agree on that. But we've not had that. And yet what I want you to hear is the word of the Lord to those people. Because it's his word to you and it's not an angry word. It's a beautiful, wonderful, life-giving word. It starts out like this. I say it comes and it's this massive shift in the book. It's like judgment and then judgment and then judgment and then judgment and then this. And it's like oxygen. God comes and through the prophet he says, comfort, comfort who? Because this is comforting. Comfort, comfort, my people. Says who? Your God. Now, why is that comforting? Because here's the other thing they had to be wondering. Has God abandoned us? I mean, I don't know, maybe he suffered a defeat, but option B, 
Maybe he's just abandoned us. Like maybe we have just been living in rebellion against him. We did grow too prideful for too long. We ignored all of his warnings. We sent away all of his prophets. We didn't do anything that he wanted to do. We are in fact faithless. Have we grown so faithless and prideful that he has completely abandoned us? Finally, he just threw his hands up and said, all right, fine, whatever. You guys go to Babylon. Go on, go on. Like cattle. Just going to herd you. Off you go. Because I'm done. God's like, no, no, no. You might abandon me, but I do not abandon you. He says, go to my people. Here's the message. Comfort, comfort my people. Tell them that's who they are. Says, your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. That's that's an image for the people is the idea. And cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity, her sin, is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, which is a little confusing and it sounds unfair, doesn't it? Because it sounds like what he's saying is, I've punished them Two times for every one sin, and it's not at all what it's saying. So under the law of God, if I stole one of your sheep, and I know right now you're thinking, Tom, I'm not too scared of that because I don't have any sheep, you know? Like, I don't deal in sheep. I'm not a shepherd, and and neither am I, but let's pretend, okay? So you have sheep. I steal one of your sheep. You know that I stole your sheep. The FBI and the CIA convicts me of, you know, stealing your sheep. I'm found guilty in a court of law for stealing your sheep. What is justice? It's not just that I return your sheep, payment number one. It's that I end up doing to myself what I sought to do to you. And so the law would require me to give you a sheep back And then, because I sought to dispossess you of a sheep, justice says, now, Tom, you're going to be dispossessed of one of yours. And so I would have to give you two sheep, even though I had only stolen one. That's what this is a reference to. What God is saying is, go to my people, comfort my people, tell my people that full payment for all of their sin has been made, and I am satisfied it has been accepted. That's a comforting word. And here's why. Because our lives, all of them, are full of stolen sheep. And, you know, maybe you're thinking, I don't even know you, and now you're calling me a thief. And uh, and I am, sort of. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you're actually stealing stuff or if you've actually stolen stuff. I thought about this this week. I'm like, have I stolen anything? I mean, not lately, but like, I did steal a yo-yo two or three days in a row, actually, from a 7-Eleven until the 7-Eleven guy. I was like 12, so I wasn't 40. Just keep that in mind. Until the 7-Eleven guy figured it out, and then he chased me and my friend, who later on in life, curiously enough, did actually go to jail, okay, out of the 7-Eleven, all right? And thus ended my career as a thief. But that, I don't think, is the kind of thievery that I'm concerned about. The kind of thievery I'm concerned about is the fact that God, the creator of all things, of me and of you, has created us to live for him. And here's what we have stolen. We've stolen our lives from him. We've lived for us and for other people and for other things and for all kinds of stuff far less than him. And we can't repay him. It creates a debt. See, the gospel is that God so loved us that he sent this Jesus that Isaiah speaks of 700 years before he shows up into the world. God made man that he might suffer and die as the penalty for our sin that God then might receive his payment for our debt, and we know that he's received the payment for our debt because he raised him from the dead. He's like, come to Christ. Recognize the debt. Cry out like, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't do anything about this, but I claim by faith what Jesus has done, the payment that he's made, and the payment is made. 
He comes to you and says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's remarkable. And we know that he's talking about Jesus here because even though he's writing 700 years before Christ shows up, it, it just he describes him. See, what happens next in Isaiah 40 is you hear three voices. I'm just going to summarize them. Voice number one, God is saying, listen, your debt is paid, not by you. That's an impossible task. Your debt is going to be paid by God who is coming into the world, how? As a king, a great and coming king that voice number two says, oh, by the way, comes in the flesh. And what is flesh? Because Ryan just sang it. It's like the grass. You know, the grass withers and fades away. Human flesh is subject to death. We all experience that. Experience it when other people die. We will experience it when we die. But the word of the Lord, and who is that? It's not just a thing. It's a person. It's Jesus. It says in Isaiah 40, not will stand forever. It says it will arise forever. So just replay that for a minute. So Isaiah is saying, listen, payment for our debt, which is of great comfort and eternally so for God's people, and it's by which we are his people, finally, fully, definitively, and for forever is going to be made by one who will come as of Isaiah's day. 700 years later, he will be God. He will come as a king. He will suffer death. He will arise forever. That only describes one person in all of history. And so then voice three comes along and says, okay, so here's the response to that. Here's the reaction to that. Here's what you are supposed to go do. So confident am I, Isaiah says, of that happening. And here's why I'm confident, because of who God is and because of what he's like relative to everything that happens in our life and world. There's no way this is not happening. He says, go up onto the mountains, bring with you trumpets, you know, bring the little megaphone thingies. And he says, declare from the mountaintops the Savior who, ha- who will come. And we're on the other side of the cross. And we are to declare to the people in our family, to the people we work with, to the people we go to school with, to the people in this city, the people of South Florida, the Savior who has come, who's paid the price, who relieves us of the debt, through whom we are welcomed into the family of God. Guys, that's what Alpha is about. That's why we're coming to you and going, hey, Who are you inviting to Alpha? Because it starts this Thursday. But what was another one of the problems that these people had back then, if you think about it? Because I think it's a problem that we have as well. They're so beaten down. I mean, imagine the experience that they've just been through. They're so beaten down, I think, and they're so overwhelmed by the power, for example, of the Babylonian Empire that they're just looking around and they're hearing these promises, you know. Okay, deliverance is going to come, and okay, there's going to be this and that, and here's what God's going to do. And they're like, I don't really know that I can buy this. Can God do this actually? That's the question. And instead of being insulted by the question, knowing that's what's in their heart and in ours, I mean, we look at our lives and we look at this world and it's so crazy and we're like, ah, you know, can God fix this? You know, could God himself set everything in the world right? Could he make it all new? The Lord isn't irritated by the question. He's like, all right, so let me give you the answer. And the answer is found, you know, frankly, in taking your eyes off of all of this and all the stuff you're overwhelmed with and, and looking at me. He's like, hey, up here, let's talk for a moment about me. He says, who has measured all the waters of the earth is the idea in the hollow of his hand. Okay, so I want you to do something. This is going to be cool. You ready? Just take your hand and put it out like this. Just cup it. 
All right, look at it. How much water can you get in there? I'm thinking like a thimble, okay? I mean, maybe you got like a huge hand, you know, an ounce or two. Then it starts leaking out by the crease, by your thumb. I mean, it's a, this is a very insecure cup. Can we agree? God's like, all right, so look at your hand. Okay, now let me tell you about my hand because this is the one you need to be focused on. He's like, all the water in the earth? Yeah, like in that little space right there. You're like, how much water is that exactly? I- I'm going to blow your mind. Actually, I'm not. I'm going to say these numbers, and you're just going to go, I don't know. I don't have a category for this. I just go numb. I mean, I I can't do it. 352 quintillion gallons of water. I I mean, how many of you are hearing the word quintillion for the first time? Like, I had to look it up. Like, what the heck is a quintillion? Okay, so a quintillion, this isn't going to help either, is a million trillions that help? How about this? Bigger measurements. 332,500,000 cubic miles of water. That do anything for you? No. All I got is a thimble over here and an unbelievable amount that I can't even begin to get my head around over here. And it's not leaking out through the crease of his hand by his thumb. He's like, you're focused on the wrong hand, guys. And he stays with the hand. He goes on and he says, and who has marked off the heavens with a span? Okay, so now you don't have to put it up like this, but go like this. Take your hand and take a look at it. Just spread it out, okay? And look at the space between the tip of your thumb and the tip of your pinky. That's a span. So whatever that is, that's a span for you. God's like, yeah, you know the whole universe? About like that. That's it right there. I want to show you a picture of the tiniest fragment of our universe. Like if you looked at the universe through the end of a needle, all right? Like think the universe is all around and just a needle point of it in any direction. Through the Hubble telescope, this is what you see. What do you think you're looking at? Because it's not stars. It's galaxies. Just galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy. That's a needle point. Think of the whole of it. We're estimating today, I mean, what are the estimates going to be in 100 years or 1,000 years if we're still around? But we are estimating today that there are between 200 billion and 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. Each one of which has hundreds of billions of stars. God's like, not like that, the whole thing. What is he saying? He's coming to me and he's coming to you and he's going, listen, part of the reason you doubt me is because you look around at all the things that are overwhelming to you and you're looking at the wrong hand. Yes, you cannot deliver the world. You can't deliver you. That's why you're so exhausted. But I'm over here. I'm completely other. I'm entirely different. All the water of the earth, it's just like yeah, maybe a little puddle right here. That's it. That's all it is. The entire universe, it's about like that. He's saying you're measuring off the issues and the challenges and all of this against the wrong person, against the wrong being, against the wrong things. And then he continues. He says, who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? It's like he's got out like a middle school science kit, you know, and he says, all right, gather up all the dirt and all the sand. We're going to put them in this little measure. We're going to oh, look at that. You know, like there's that much. He goes on and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. He's like, I wonder how much Everest weighs. You know what? Let's just find out. 
That's about what I figured. It's remarkable. And then he one-ups it. He says, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? And he's not just talking about the immensity of himself. He's talking about the immensity of his heart, of his mind, of his purposes, of his ways, of his thoughts. He's like, oh, by the way, who has measured me? Is there a middle school science kit for that? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand anything? Who taught God the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And the obvious answer to this is no one. And so he moves from the realm of the cosmos now to the realm of history. And he says, behold the nations. Again, they're in Babylon. He's like, yeah, forget about Babylon. Just gather them all up. He's like, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. All right, so, you know, like when you drop a bucket, and you've never dropped a bucket into a well, right? It's like owning sheep. I don't own sheep, Tom. I don't have a well in my backyard with a little pulley system, and then I drop the bucket. You can imagine it. You let the bucket down. The bucket hits the water. It rolls sideways. It fills up with water, right? And then you kind of pull it up. You know when it's full. And then you start to pull it up from the bottom of the well, and a tiny little drop falls off the side of the wet bucket. He's like, all the nations of the world like that drop. That's it. That's all. It's a remarkable thought. I think we'd all agree at this point that China is a pretty powerful country. The government of China right now is doing everything it can to stomp out the Christian church. And it is exploding in China. The government of Iran is doing everything it can to stomp out the Christian church. It's growing faster there than anywhere else in the world. And I think that's part of the reason. I mean, part of the reason is they get together, they kiss each other goodbye in the morning, and one goes to work that way, and one goes to work that way, and one goes to school, and one goes to the park to walk the dog, whatever. And they don't know if they're going to see each other at the end of the day. And then they do, and they're like, praise Jesus, and then the next day comes. That sort of narrows you down to the real Christians. Can we agree on that? Like, you don't have people pretending in that kind of a church. It's remarkably ironic. Since the beginning of the quarantine, and this is far from the oppression of China and Iran, since the beginning of the quarantine, about a third of the Christian church has disappeared. And that doesn't mean they they disappeared from their church, but they reappeared at another one. It means they left entirely. I wonder what the Lord is doing, honestly. Like, I wonder if he isn't skinnying us down to the real church. And you're like, well, Tom, are you saying that, you know, to be a Christian, you have to come to church? No, but I am saying that Christians go to church. So I'm deducing it that way. I think that's the natural expression of a heart captured by Jesus. It is worship and it is with God's people worship, whether that's on the line or here. God's like, look, let's talk about the issues. Let's talk about the challenges. Let's talk about the nations. You're impressed with the nation, Israel? Babylon? I don't know. None of that is anything compared to me. In fact, they're just like, they're accounted as dust, he says, on the scales. You don't even have to wipe the dust off the scales because the dust weighs so little, the scales don't even register it. He says, behold, God takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon, so he calls out one of the nations. And he calls out a nation known for its forests and trees. Lebanon, with all of its trees, would not suffice for fuel. It doesn't have enough to make a big enough fire, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering for a God such as me. 
All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. My goodness. Got it. And here's what he's not saying. He's not saying all the nations don't matter to him. Oh, no, that's not the truth at all. He is calling forth a people from every nation, every language, every tribe, every tongue, every race, every kind of person in the whole of humanity across the spectrum of the time of humanity, all of the cultures of humanity, and he's knitting us all together as one people. He cares about every different kind of person and all of the nations. What he's saying is, when it comes to my plans and purposes in your life, when it comes to my plans and purposes for my people, when it comes to my ability in the end to settle it all, to set all things right, to make all things new, all the nations in opposition to that, they're less than nothing. There is no one and nothing that can prevent me from fulfilling my promises to my people. And that should fill you up a little bit, you know? Like that should make you go, oh, oh good. That's helpful. He continues in verse 21. He says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants with their monumental egos and with their monumental power from our perspective as fellow inhabitants are what to him? They're like grasshoppers. It's he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes, the most honored among us, to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth the most powerful among us as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the ground like they're barely up out of the earth when he blows on them and they wither and and the tempest just rolls them up and carries them away like stubble. And so God says, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And then he returns our gaze to the heavens. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see. I love that. And listen, we have the ability to do that in ways that those people could not do. I mean, we've already seen one picture from the Hubble telescope. It's remarkable. I was out walking the dog last night, and uh, I'm looking up at this star in the sky. I'm like, good grief, this thing is huge. You know, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, it looked like the natal star of Jesus. I mean, it's really big and bright. Good grief. And so, you know, I'm saying to the dog, you know, hey, did you see that? And she's like, like nine dogs have peed here, you know, so I'm just going to sniff. You know, like you you can fascinate over that star if you want to. That's fine. And so I've got this app on my phone and, you know, I can bring it up and I can point it at basically anything in the sky. And then it tells me what it is. And it was Jupiter. Pretty cool. But we can do better than that. You know, as you begin to look up out into the sky, and I think the Lord is happy with this, he's like, good, you got a telescope? All right, well, why don't you look at this thing? It's called the rose of a galaxy. Because that's out there. It's one of the anywhere from 200 billion to 2 trillion that are out there. He's like, oh, you like that one? How about this next one? We call this one the fluffy galaxy. That's how you know scientists named it, you know? I'd have just fired them as name givers at that point. Like, the fl- that's the best you can do. Bring the artists in. We need a design team. Somebody's going to name these things. But it's remarkable. 
How about NGC 4911? They went with numbers. I mean, you got to do that eventually at some point. That's out there. How about UGC 810? Is that beautiful? It's the artwork of the Lord. How about ARP 273? All right, my personal favorite, I've shown this before, is the Sombrero Galaxy. That's the last one. That's actual. Like, that's a picture of something that actually exists. That's not something that, you know, Hollywood came up with to thrill us. I mean, it, that is the handiwork of the Lord. David says it is the work of his fingers. You know where the work of his arms are? This. This. God says, oh, you have the ability to look out into the heavens. This is awesome. Look out into the heavens. Take advantage of that telescope. It's phenomenal. Go on the website. Who created these, he asks. And I think that's a question you need to settle. Because clearly he's claiming that he created this. So it's either him or, wait for it, nothing created that. (laughs) Because ultimately that's what you're left with. He says, who created these? Let me answer this. It was me. It was he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And then God goes straight for our hearts in the most redemptive, wonderful of ways. He's like, look, I know you've got some questions you want to ask me. I'm going to articulate your question for you, and then I'm going to answer it. He says, here's what you want to say. You're looking at your life. It seems like it's a disaster. The world looks like it's falling apart. Calling us Jacob and Israel, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Lord, where are you? Do you see this? What's going on here? Like, why aren't you doing something? Why do you say, My way is hidden from the Lord and my right? I've been wronged and I deserve justice. My right is disregarded by my God. He's like, One look at me will cure you of that problem is you're not looking. You're looking at this hand. He's like, what about this hand? This is the one to look at. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable, which means there will be a lot of times we won't be able to search it out. We won't have the answers to the questions of why, for example, every time. But there's someone we can trust with it. He gives power to the faint. Well, that's good news. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, the strongest among us, shall faint and be weary. And young men, those with the most energy, shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord... Okay, those people shall renew their strength. Those people shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And then do you know what Isaiah does? He just drops the mic. Like, done. That's it. Message given. It's beautiful. Look, I love this chapter, and I I love it because particularly in moments when I'm overwhelmed with all the stuff down here, I, I just run to it. 
And it tells me, I'm like, oh, yes. Tells me who my God is. It tells me what he's like relative to all this stuff. It says, Tom, wrong hand. (laughs) Look up. Look around. It tells me a day of deliverance is coming. And because of who he is and what he's like, it's coming. Jesus, who's come once, will come again, and he'll do what he's promised to do, which is make all things right and new. And it tells me what else to do in the meantime. Between here and now, it says, all right, you know what? Take your worn-out strength, your, your desire to control it all, to manufacture your own salvation and the salvation of everybody you care about, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and to turn that in and to trust God, to follow him, and in doing so, to know his strength. And so here's how I want to close, okay? I want to walk through what that looks like. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And that means what? I think it means us being really honest with ourselves, maybe most of all, but then also before the Lord and just saying, God, I, I, I'm going to bring to you my weary mind. I am tired of thinking about all this stuff. Where's me out? I'm going to bring to you my weary soul. I, I feel dead inside, I'm like calloused, hard. I'm going to bring to you my weary heart. Not sure it's alive. Maybe. I'll bring to you my weary body, my weary life. I'm going to bring it and lay it before you, and, and I'm going to confess the sin of wearing myself out, trying to be my own Savior. It starts with that. Secondly, I think it continues as we, having done that now, embrace with confidence by faith the God who really is. By not looking at our hand but his. By saying, you know what, I agree, God, with who you are. Now, your ways are unsearchable, so I'm confused at times. Believe me, the people in Babylon were confused. And that's the least of the things they experienced. I'm confused at times, but I am going to trust God. You and I am going to confidently believe and expect your deliverance. That the day is coming, all things made new, everything set right. And so then in an abandonment of myself and in a confident expectation and embrace of you, I'm going to give you my worthless power. I'm going to surrender, Lord, and I'm going to just say, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your power and lead me through each day. Show me the battles to fight and the things to be concerned about and how to deal with it and so on and so forth as I encounter life and it encounters me. Give me that perspective that is yours, that is life-giving. And let me operate not in my strength. I've proven it's not enough, but in yours. So I'm going to pray. And um, if that's you, I want to lead you through that. And by the way, like if you're here today or if you're watching online and you're like, I don't even know Jesus. Like, and I, like a whole learned, you told me about the whole debt thing. And I was like, boom, you know, good point. Then bring him your sin and yourself and say, I, I've got a debt here. I've lived for myself. I can't pay the debt. But I believe Jesus has, has paid the debt at the expense of his life and that you've, you're satisfied with the payment for you raised him from the dead. So I want to begin with there, with that. Forgive me, Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Make me new. And begin through your word to give me your mind. That's your prayer if you're not a Christian and you're willing, if you're willing to pray it. So let, let's pray together. Father, we, we come to you this morning.
uh, as those who know you and perhaps as some who don't. And in both cases, we bring our lives to you. God, we have a debt of sin that we cannot pay. We've stolen our lives from you and we cannot go back. And so we claim through Jesus forgiveness for all of that, the payment of our debt, and we ask you to fill us or to fill us anew with your spirit, Lord, and to lift our heads. God, we come to you weary, and we ask that you would forgive us for all of the ways that we have forsaken you, all of the ways that we have abandoned you, all of the ways that we've ignored you, all of the ways that you've become nothing but a last resort to us. Oh, yeah, 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 I've tried everything else, now I'm going to pray. God, forgive us for that. We admit defeat and that we are helpless without you. And yet you are not helpless. And so we confess before you, God, your greatness, the ability that alone belongs to you, the wisdom that you have and no one else does, the perspective that you have that no one else does, the plans and the purposes that you have that are altogether good. We embrace that now by faith. We claim you for ourselves and you as our strength. Lord, we come to you weary and tired. Weakness exposed. And we lay it down and give it to you. God, fill us with your spirit and fill us with your your mind and fill us with the passions of your heart. Make us like you. God, meet with us when we pray, when we open your word, when we come together in worship. Lord, meet with us, speak with us, inhabit us, enliven us, awaken us, peel back all the scales of our hearts and the hardness that's developed and all the cynicism that's crept in and all the idols that have been exposed. Relieve us of all of this stuff and make us alive in you. Let us live for you. Let us live by you and by your power. We forsake our weakness. We embrace your strength. And we do this in the name of the one who has come once and who has promised to come again. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.